0: Chapter in the forty-second verse, and whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. In Mark the fourteenth chapter, the thirteenth verse, and he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them. Go ye into the city, and there ye shall meet you a man, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him." Let me paraphrase that. And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and you'll see two district superintendents riding in a Cadillac, three district superintendents. And they shall look very godly and holy, and uh, you can tell that they're men of the cloth by the way they act. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It said, go and you'll find a water boy. <laughs> Follow him! Shall we bow our heads? Brother Weeks, would you pray? Hallelujah. Let our hearts be stirred. Let us be lifted up into your holy presence. Hallelujah. Those who are here without you, Lord, I pray you will knock at their heart's door. Help them see, Convict their hearts, oh God. And let them know you deny in the power, the wonderful power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lift up your hands and praise the Lord. You may be seated. I always get real thirsty when I uh, preach a sermon. And I've had two cups of water delivered to me already tonight in the name of the Lord. And I pray God's blessing on these water boys, the engineer of our sound system tonight, and also our choir director. They're going to get a big reward for getting this little old preacher cup of water. You believe in that? You believe in that? You see, we get our values so confused and so mixed up sometimes. We think being the soloist in the choir sometimes is the top of the ladder. And I want you to know that some of the most menial tasks mean so much to the work of God and are so important. David was probably in a cave when it happened. He was a fugitive, of course, from, from uh, Saul's army, but he was still a king. In hiding from the enemy, with I'm sure centuries outside the cave door. Men in the bushes standing guard, and an army of valiant men that were willing to fight till death. And it's recorded in the Bible that some of them fought until their swords actually froze to their fingers and had to be pried away. What valiant men. The Bible records them as David's valiant men. But the time I like to talk about is when they were eavesdropping on the old boy, watching for his security. They were his guards. His very desires had to be fulfilled for them, by them. They were there to see that he slept good, rose up, and was clothed and groomed. They were his valets. They were everything that he needed as a king. And as he stayed there and probably penned the words that are so uh, beautiful to us today, when he thought how well he was being taken care of, how the best of food was prepared for him, even in the wilderness. I found out in Israel there's a difference between the wilderness and the desert. The desert means a deserted place just an unhandy area where there's no shopping center, no Kmart or anything like that. But a wilderness is a place where nothing grows, and that's just what it is. It is not only a wilderness, it is a desert wilderness. Guide specifically told this story to us several times so we, we, we would not confuse the two. I'm not sure exactly where David was hiding, but as he reminisced about his physical needs and how they were supplied even though a vagabond and a fugitive at this time. He was, there was one part of his life that no one seemed to remember or no one seemed to care about, and he penned these words, No one or no man cared from us for John Hancock or Prudential or whatever it may be, was not concerned about his soul, they'll write you a policy on your life. And they'll gamble on the very fact that you're going to live so long. But no one much is interested in your soul. How many times have you been stopped on the street today? How many times have you been stopped at the border and a man come up and smile at you and say, sir, I was wondering about your soul and if you knew God? The very needs and the values that are so important to us seem to be bypassed even by the holiest of preachers and those who seem to proclaim that they are men of God. We forget what's important in life and what we are here for. So they heard him before he was retiring. There was one thing that went through his mind. He was tired of drinking brook water and sandy Sulfur-smelling water of the desert. And he said right out loud to himself and God and everybody, every bat and bird and spider in the cave that could hear it, I wish I had a good cool drink of water from the wells of Bethlehem. And the big ears outside the cave heard what he said. I don't know whether you've ever been around soldiers or guards or not. I was at Buckingham Palace once, and I tried to distract the guard. I went by the horse gate, and there the fellow stood looked like one of my children that I had when I was a little boy. And as I went by, I watched his eyes to see if they would roll and watch me, and they did not move. He stood like he was petrified. And when I got a few feet from him, I made a turn and came back, and I went by again, and I went, nothing moved. I passed by again, and I went, nothing moved. I looked at the concrete when it was time for the changing of the guard, and there was a path war about two inches deep where these fellows walked their guard duty and were so faithful. But then I caught one of them as I disappeared off in the distance. I took look back and took one glance and I saw him going. I caught him. And this night, as David said, his lips, lips were parched and his stomach was craving. I had some water, and that their guard outside said, Did you hear what he said? No, what did he say? He said that he would like to have some water from the wells at Bethlehem. You know what that means, don't you, bud? That means that we're going after water. Man, are you crazy? Don't you realize in the valley we will be ambushed and we will be left dead? We will bleed to death from the swords of the enemy? The sentries, the guards that we have to go through in the lines of Saul's army will pulverate us? You heard me. We're going to get water. And as one ran ahead and they slipped up behind the first guard at the borderline, the enemy had approached and they slip up behind him and they strangle him and drop him to the ground and move on behind more bushes, throw a rock to get the attention of another guard and as he looks at the distance, (laughs) I I learned all these tricks that they do in magazines when I was a boy. And uh, he gets his attention off in another direction while he's conked on the head and left, and the two men taking off over another hill and through another valley and across another brook and over some more rocks and slipping through the very grips of death itself with one thing in mind, we gotta get to the water well. We gotta get to the water. We gotta get to the water. I was at Shechem two months ago where one of Jacob's wells are. We went through one evening, and everything was beautiful. The vineyards were still growing, even though it was not summer. And the hillsides were so glorious, and the well was there that Jacob had established. We went back the next morning to see it and investigate it a little more thoroughly. And when we got to the crossroads, there was machine gun nests set up. There was armored cars, and they said, You cannot go to Shechem. There's trouble at Jacob's well. There were demonstrators carrying on. Brother, we didn't pursue it any further. All of a sudden, the water at Jacob's Well became bitter to me and I wasn't interested. No machine gun bullets (laughs) were going to be in my body to be carried back to the United States. And so we had to retreat, but not these fellas. They didn't stop at anything, brother. There were no fences too high. There were no vineyards too thick. There was no uh, desert too sandy for them as they finally approached their destination, victoriously, and they got that water. And uh, I can see them falling on the ground, not only exhausted, but rejoicing inside, reaching and patting each other on the back, congratulating themselves because they got the water. And now, friend, I want you to know the trip back is going to be more perilous than the one we had coming over because not only do we gotta get ourselves through those lines, we gotta get the water through those lines. We gotta get the water back. The king's wanting some water. I heard him say it before he laid down to sleep. He doesn't know we heard him, but he said he he expressed that he would like to have some of this water. Man, look at it. Mm. Don't blame him for wanting this water. Mm. This water is wonderful. I wish all of you folks out there had a nice, refreshing, cool drink of this water. It's just great. It's just marvelous. Uh, I'm glad somebody fought the lines of the auditorium tonight and shot and, and brought me this water. It's great, thank God. So it was about the same story, except you had the jug of water. And while one fellow ran interference, the other one brought the water. And as he cleared the way, yeah, quarter by quarter or yards by yards, he said, come on, it's all clear. We can go. And finally, as they slipped up behind the last guard and honked him on the head and knocked him and left him for dead. And there's no doubt in my mind that there was bloodshed. The Bible seems to bear this out. But finally we're there. We're within sight of the cave and the place where David is resting. And it's worth waking him up. After all, isn't this what he wanted? Isn't this what he was talking about? King, King, Master, Sir, can you hear us? A groggy, sleepy David arises, taking the enemies after them again, reaches for his sword, possibly. Are his cloak? Yes, 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 what is it? Sir, we, we got what you asked for. I didn't ask you for anything. Oh, sir, but we heard you. You said you'd like to have some water. And we brought you some water. I said I'd like to have some water from the wells of Bethlehem. And how did you hear it? Well, sir, this is water from the wells of Bethlehem. Then immediately, like a motion picture machine, the mind of David reacts. And you can see men running, offering their lives, running through the enemy, escaping, waving swords and flying arrows and darting spears. And they got the water. And it, began to seize him when he thought the cost of what he was getting and what it meant. And he looked up at these valiant men, with the dust and dirt still running down their cheeks, the perspiration still, gathering their black beautiful hair and mats, but a smile of satisfactory and victory on their face that killing a thousand soldiers wouldn't have given them. It was the victory of bringing a cup of water to the king when he was desiring it. You know the story is David took the water and he poured it out on the ground. (laughs) The hungry, the dry, the thirsty ground swallowed up the precious water that he had been so eager to get. But when he thought of the cost of it and the value of these men that brought it to him, he sacrificed it. For their glory. I'm not going to pour all this out because I want to drink some. So two of the most valiant men in the Word of God was established, and one of the most beautiful stories was ever written. Because David had some water boys. You see, we're not needing and we're not short on bishops. We are not short on orators even though there may not be too many naturally born orators. We have unique men and women and children in the word of God, or in the work of God, that are natural born water boys. And it's time we begin to realize what we're doing. We're carrying water. That's what we're doing. I can prove it. Oh, he that thirsts. Come and let him drink of the waters of life freely. And I want you to know you don't have to have a Lincoln Continental. I have one because a kind assembly of God, man, gives me one to drive. Isn't that beautiful? I've had three of them it's cost me $200. And that's God. Brother else got the same thing. Man leases him a car. These are the kind things of God, but that's not what we're short on. We are not short on fine cars. We are not short on fine dressed preachers. I'll tell you, I saw about the nicest dressed bunch of men. I'll tell you, I, I thought I was coming down here in a pine thicket and you all become church in overalls. But I saw some of the sharpest dressed preachers for their age of any I've ever seen in my life. Brother, I don't mean that uh, derogatory because your district superintendent is one of the finest looking men in the country. That'll help me get back again, won't it, huh? One of the sweetest men too, incidentally. You better not holler water, I'll take out. Ah! We need to realize what's important. This didn't happen to me overnight. I started reminiscing. My mind went back to the old Adams School playground. Play the old schoolyard. If you don't know where that is, that's in St. Louis, right down where all the country people live. That's where I lived. My folks come in from the country, that's where they stopped. It was so country, they called it Tower Grove, Missouri, and it was right in the middle of the city. It was just a country town of its own. And some of the highlights of my life was on that old playground when the gang all gathered together for that ball game. Brother, I don't know where they came from, but they came out of those houses like rats. Newstead Avenues, little old frame bungalows, produced their uh, Straverskys and their Garrets. And we had a row of houses called Bed Bug Row. You ought to see them come out of there. Not the Bed Bugs, I'm talking about the kids. And here they come, old Bill Cronin, Peanuts Lowry, and all of them, Peanuts McCormick. The Haley boys, they lived on Vista, and they were the biggest, and everybody knew they'd get to be the boss and the captains. So they said, uh, all right, fellas, line up, we're going to tune up, choose up sides, and uh, this is when I really tried to look my best. After all, I did own the bat and ball. I was an only child, and... Probably had the only family that made $12 a week in the block. So therefore, I own the bat and ball. that, that that's put me in the game for sure. No doubt about it. I would be, because after all, I could take my bat and ball and go home, you know. But these potential big league managers with their stubby hair and freckled noses looked us over and decided who they want. And Bill, Billy Crane, the, the, the uh, neighborhood bully, was always first because, after all, if you didn't choose him first, he would clean up on you later. Then we had Dago Louie, the Italian boy. He was second because he could do just about as good a job on you as Bill Crane. He had a lot of mouth and a lot of wind and very little uh, finesse. He always got on the team. Haley boys, of course, were choosing sides, John and Harvey. Peanuts uh, McCormick always got chosen because he was the intellect of baseball. He knew what Babe Ruth's batting average was. At that time, Pepper Martin and the Gas House Gang knew all about him. And so anybody that smart got to, got to be on the team, whether they could play ball or not. I stood there, and when the number got down to just a few, I started stretching myself. Hey, John. And I would move from one foot. Hey, did you ever go through this? I'd move from one foot to the other. Hey, fellas, Remember the old star here? You made a home run today. And finally I had it all figured out. They were still choosing sides. And they were down to uh, fellows that I knew couldn't hit the side of a barn with an ironing board. And it uh, didn't take much calculation to figure if they went on like they were. I wasn't going to make it. They were already down to a couple of them that was better than me, and they had one or two left that I knew was better, and they just wouldn't end up. It just didn't figure out. And I was smart enough in arithmetic to knew I wasn't going to make it. And then I heard John Haley say, and Wimpy Black, you can be the water boy. You know, all of a sudden, I realized that I was in the game. And I, I was a born optimist. I've been that way all my life. All of a sudden, I figured out that you couldn't lose if you was the water boy. And there's a good chance if somebody gets knocked out, you'll be the hero. And you're going to be the most popular man after every inning, especially if you've got a cool bucket of water there. So I made my way to the shack on the playground, and I got that wrench that turned on the water Plug. And I carried my bucket over, and I run that thing over, and every time there was three outs, brother, and those sides changed. Hey, fellas, come and get it! And I was the real hero of the game. And my side won because I was on both sides. I was on the And then I began to realize the value of what seemed so insignificant. No, I was the best water boy they ever had. In fact, I think next time I got to be water boy again. Until I got big enough and overgrown that I could put one over the left field fence. Then I got on the team. But I don't think I ever had the enjoyment that I did when I was a water boy. You see, there was a rancher one time plowing his fields. And the call of God came to him. And the Bible says that he burned his plow and offered his oxen as a sacrifice. To go into the ministry, and uh, he didn't get to preach the Louisiana camp his first year. No, no, he he didn't even make main camp. That's the one I made, my first one. First and second, instead. I remembered when they asked me, and I had heard a little bit about it, that you had beans for breakfast up there. There was no inside uh, toilet facilities. The rooms and. Uh, you lived in very rough cabins. Of course, Brother Ellis, he's, he's a rough type of fellow. Don't let his eastern brogue fool you. He could sleep in a tent the rest of his life. I found that out. And they asked me, and I, they told me I probably he wouldn't get my expenses, and I said, well, I think I'm going to be pretty busy. Actually, I didn't have anywhere to go. I just assuming that I would be busy, but the Lord spoke to me, and the Holy Ghost said to me, and said, if that would have been Texas or Louisiana or someplace, you'd have jumped at the chance. And before the fellas got out of my sight, I said, sir, I'll be there. I'll be there, and I want you to know, I think that there was something like 25 children in that little camp enrolled without the Holy Ghost. And we got 30 of them filled. Now, you figure that out. We prayed some extra ones through at night. We wasn't even registered in the camp. And it was just absolutely glorious. It was just beautiful. I remember... Uh, and I was just, I was just the water boy up there. And I mean, water boy, because you carried water for everything you did up there, literally. But I took this Holy Ghost revival move that has been in my heart ever since I had been raised in such a glorious church up there, and we had the time of our life. And I remember a fellow that was just about as fat as he was tall. He received the Holy Ghost one night. We went to the door, uh, they said it was time to go to bed, and he's trying to put all those kids to bed. And some of them had received the Holy Ghost, and they were so drunk, and this was one of them. They led him to the door. There was about three steps, and he tumbled like a potato sack, or like a sack of potatoes, right out into the yard, just in over in. And I was up in Maine a few months ago. I was 14 years ago. And You know what he's doing? They said, "Brother so and so is uh, going to uh, going to uh, baptize someone." I said, "Who is that man?" They said, that's that fat boy that tumbled out of the prayer room that 14 years ago when he was up there at camp. And they called him Potatoes, incidentally. I said, Brother Black said, that's old Potatoes. I said, that's old Potatoes. I said, you mean that's the fellow? Yeah, that's him. That's him. Brother Ellis' son got married to uh, Brother Gwen's daughter, and I went to that uh, lovely wedding, and I went down the line, Alan Ellis stuck his hand out there, and he said, Thanks for praying me through to the Holy Ghost, Brother Black. In New York camp, I think it was the first youth camp they ever had. At that time, we was there to five of them. I went down two more people. I said, Brother Black, thanks for praying me through to the Holy Ghost at Camp Galilee. I went to another one. I said, Brother Black, remember Wisconsin? You prayed me through to the Holy Ghost. In that one wedding party, there were about five young people that I'd had the privilege of carrying water to. Nobody said, you preached a good sermon. Nobody said, I still remember what you preached. But they said, you helped me get the Holy Ghost. Amen. If you ever, with an earshot of anybody, and you hear an expression or find out or suspect that they need God, friend, I want you to know that there's more glory in getting somebody through to the baptism of the Holy Ghost than anything that you'll ever do. Too many people standing by on the sidelines waiting for some glamorous position to come their way, and God willing us to learn how to carry some water. Let's thank the Lord for His presence. Hallelujah. Well, let's go back to that rancher, that man who had oxen and had a plow. Anyway, that's more than I got. But God called him and he took out down the road following the prophet. When it got time in the evening where he would thought he would sit down and learn and hear the strategy of how you become a successful prophet. And Elijah was sitting down with Elisha. That old brother Schmidt, a Dutchman in our church from up Wisconsin way many years ago. He said tonight I'm going to preach on Elijah and Elijah. He said they are both the same to me because I cannot say the difference. And It's very confused when you preach about these two fellas because they sound so much alike. But I want you to know the difference was that one of them was a prophet and one of them was a water boy. And the most important job of the evening was running and getting the goatskins filled with water And coming back, just come off of here. Man, it's Bible school time. It's time for homiletics. And here's what it was. It was getting down with a big old goat skin of water and pouring water and laying them on the bony, dirty feet of the prophet. I want you to know that old water boy became a great man of God. Brother, you talk about miracles. He sounded like he was the one that invented them before his ministry was over. And if you cornered him and got him in the right place and could get him to talk about it and say, Brother Prophet Elisha, I would like to know the secret of your success. Sit down, man. I want to tell you. I learned how To preach the gospel. Washing feet. Pouring water. Getting your drink. Washing the dishes. I don't believe everybody that's a successful preacher will necessarily be a dishwasher. You may not get a chance. I hate to wash dishes. I hate to even put them in a dishwasher. But if that's what it takes, friend, to win some soul to God, get your dishes ready. Get your dishes ready most beautiful part of my life or my ministry, and I don't mind telling you this, and I've been in your fine district several times, been at the Texas district campground three times, and many other places in the country. I counted up one time, and God privileged us to be in over 50, Sister Black and I, over 50 camp meetings and youth camps, but I want you to know that that's not the most exciting time of my life, the most precious years of my life was when I rubbed the bony feet of my old pastor that took me off of the streets of St. Louis when I was just a little dirty-faced newspaper boy. He took me into his love. He came by the grocery store where I was working one day, and he said, uh, so you'd like to learn to play a saxophone, would you? And I said, oh, yeah, pastor. But I guess I'll never have one. He said, I think you will. He said, I just happened to accidentally run into one today over at the pawn shop. Take this home with you. See what you can do with it. I was playing at in the next service. I learned one song and I went and while they played everything else I played that one song all through <laughs> church. Finally I got up enough nerve to sit behind the piano player and play and here's the way he played the piano. He played the piano with one hand and kept his ears stopped up with the other while I was learning. And that precious man that would come by my house. My parents both worked and I'd run the streets. And he figured the only way I'd ever be saved. And while he got his sermons, he was a real estate man, nice paper boy. And while he got his sermons at night, he'd stop in the park in the afternoon. I'd polish his car and wash his car And he had the best-looking car of any preacher in St. Louis because I was his water boy, and I was his car-washing boy. And those are the most precious memories of my life, Brother Weeks. Those are the greatest days that I can remember. How I heard him say, now, Winfrey, if you're ever going to become a preacher, you're going to have to do this, and you're going to have to do that. And sometimes it seemed so radical, especially when he told me that I was going to have to learn to fast. I was going to learn how to get people through the Holy Ghost. And he'd see you standing by the the sidelines, and he'd tell you, if you did not help somebody find God, he'd tell you, son, you're not worthy to preach the gospel. He told that to one fellow who had license. And the fellow turned in his license. A good thing he did, because he fell into sin. It was just an indication he was afraid to be a water boy. But there's nothing more beautiful than washing the feet of the prophet of God. (laughs) Nothing any more beautiful. The arrogant spirit that has been possessed by many have let them fall by the wayside. But that beautiful spirit of the water boy exists forever. And if you grow to be a hundred, friend, I don't care. You don't outgrow it. Brother Hugh Rose was at our church one time, and Brother Erson while was always having an anniversary service, and I had been away nine years pastoring a church. Pastor Brandon got up and he said, anybody need to ride to church tomorrow to the uh, special services? Two or three old ladies raised their hand. He said, "Uh, Brother Black will pick you up. And Here I was, an ordained minister, a big shot preacher from Kansas City, and had almost as many in Sunday school as him and beat him a few times, and here he was running me around like I was a little boy. I never thought that, but Brother Rose said he did, and he said, you know what happened? He said, Brother Black just took off and went around town picking him up. Well, of course I did. That's all I ever knew. I didn't know there was any other way. I didn't know that you could get to be big shot enough that you didn't have to do that anymore. One pastor told me as I was trying to stimulate them to go out and pick up people and bring them to church. This happened for him about 25 years ago. And he had me there to help him. And he said, now, Brother Black, don't you think it's below the dignity of the ministry or a pastor to have to go out and pick up people and bring them to church? My pastor died in his car going to make a call to see somebody in a hospital. Died in his automobile at 79 years old, and when he died, I had to take over his Sunday school route because he had a Sunday school route up until he was 79 years old and pastored a church of several hundred people, one of the largest in our fellowship and made his Sunday school route every Sunday. And you want to know the rest of it? If you please won't tell us back in St. Louis, they were probably some of the most undesirable people that came to our church. You had to open the front wings and zero weather the car to let the fresh air in, if you know what I mean. And these are the ones that he chose to take to church. And you know who inherited that route? I did. I'm still taking them. I'm still hauling them, and I get a blessing every time I go by there. And my boy is kind of caught on to the blessing in doing things like this. And he says, Dad, uh, I'll pick up those folks. You go on church. Oh, hallelujah. I'm talking to you from my heart. I'm telling you what's going to make you a good saint of God and a good preacher. You see, it's not always the folks that we think it is that are on the inside track. It may be somebody that you least expect that's on the inside track. Jesus went to the marriage of Cana, And when the bride and bridegroom reached the point of the ceremony where the refreshments were to be passed out. And I still say the reason that that marriage was so beautiful and the reason there was a miracle performed was only because Jesus was there. And every marriage that will ever be a success and have miracles in it, it's going to have to have Jesus at the wedding. I just threw that in for good measure. But there was an embarrassing moment. Through the grapevine, it was announced to the people that might be interested that we are running out of food. The crowd is much larger than we expected. We have a lot of people here that we did not expect to be here. Are we miscalculated? Somebody made a mistake, and we are utterly embarrassed. What shall we do? And Mary knew no, that in any kind of a dilemma, you told Jesus about it. He was told about it. Been nice if he could have sent out to the catering service. If he could have sent out and had somebody to pull some quick magic, but if there was any miracles to be performed, Jesus would do it. There was people that would know about this and they would find out about it and it would be recorded in the Bible and we'd preach about it the rest of our life. We'd tell about this beautiful miracle. So he says, send me the water boys. Send me the servants. He says, hey, fellas, Jesus of Nazareth wants says, What does he want? He said, bring all of them water jars. And I can see some little half-pint servant. And he says to that guy, he said, do you know how big those water pots are? He says, man, yes, I know how big they are, but he said, bring them. Bring them. Why don't he get them himself? Does he expect me to carry?" Listen, fella, you're not supposed to talk about how heavy the water pots are. You're just a servant. You're just a water boy. And you're supposed to carry them. And if you think it's going to break your back, you're supposed to carry them anyway. And if they're too heavy for you, you're supposed to do it anyway. You're supposed to try to do it. And oh yes, he said something else. He said, fill them up to the brim. What? Fill them up to the brim, man. They're so heavy you can't hardly carry them empty. Now he wants you to fill them up to the brim. Yes, he said, fill them up. I'm not going to fill mine up. Yes, you are. You're going to fill it right up, like you said, right up the top. Man, I can't carry it. You're going to carry it. So here they come, marching in in regimental style, carrying these big old water pops. Don't drop none of it either, buddy. Set it down right here, and be careful when you set it down. What's he going to do with it? I don't know what he's going to do with it. He said, fill them up. Bring them in. What's he want them for? Man, these people, they want wine. They don't want water. I don't know what he's going to do with them. Our job, and let me tell you and remind you one more time, buddy, you are just a little old water boy. And you are not supposed to ask questions why and what's going to be in it and how heavy it is. You're just supposed to carry the water. Here's this little inquisitive fella. His nose barely over the top of the water jar. And Jesus comes by and puts in that magic dipper. And right before his little bugging eyes, he sees the color of the water change. He sees water turning into beautiful glistening. And all of a sudden, God adds the aroma. (sighs) And he smiles and he says, Man, I just saw a miracle. And he's only a water boy and he can't get up and scream about it and tell everybody. So all he can do is punch his buddy. And he says, Look, man. Look, 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 look. And you see all the water boys lined up watching the miracle. Mouths open. Eyes bugging. Hearts beating. Hey, hey. Look, 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 look. Silently, somebody comes up and asks what's wrong. And officially, it was whispered, passed out man, this water has been turned into wine. And then the uh, catering chief starts seeing that it is passed out to the guests. Uh, how many would like a refill? Sir, I'd like to have a refill. This is this, this your good wine. Now we need an official, we need an official uh, opinion of this wine, just how good it is. And finally the governor of the feast got to put his little smackers, and he got to get his little taste of that wine. And then he proclaims, and it becomes official, and everybody perks up their ears. Uh, Silence, please. Quiet, uh, please. Uh, you folks over here, uh, just a minute, please. The governor of the feast has an announcement to make. And he said, I would like, you know, people like that, they got to sound important. And he said, I would like to announce after I have made the investigation and have pasted and tested that they have saved the best one until the last. And all of those stuffy shirts was nodding their heads. I just say he is sure telling the truth. And there's a little old guy down there helping pass out the wine. He said, man, we knew it all the time. <laughs> half an hour ago, a half an hour ago, we knew that the water had been turned into wine. <laughs> And never where he went after that. And when they hired him over at the wall, North Astoria, and he went in and they said, Who are you? Where have you worked? He said, Man, I saw water turned into wine. <laughs> I am the servant. I am the miracle servant. I am the one who witnessed the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. Let's praise the Lord. Hallelujah.